health is about more than just staying fit. And with every year that goes by, I'm becoming more and more fascinated by how what we eat can impact our health and our potential, with a particular focus on gut health and the gut microbiome. It's not just what I eat either, it's how I eat too. It's all connected. That's why I've developed my own number one living drinks brand. Number One Living is based on this idea, the simple notion that by putting our well-being first and improving the quality of what we put into our bodies, we get more out of life. My range of kombucha drinks are full of bacterial life cultures, designed for a happy and healthy gut. They're sugar-free, vegan and naturally sourced, so you can feel great on the inside and enjoy life on the outside. Choose from refreshing raspberry, passion fruit or our award-winning ginger and turmeric kombucha. The number one living range is widely available in Sainsbury's, Holland and Barrett's and Boots stores and online at numberoneliving.com. Grab yours today. Okay, on with the show. It was a really nice touch this week to be able to converse with someone who I followed with great interest during their sporting career. Someone who also was willing to share some deeper, challenging personal stories where so much power lies. Justin Langer had a long and brilliant stint in professional cricket as a key member of a legendary Australian national team and has since gone on to coach them too. During his tenure in charge of his squad, they went on to take back the Ashes, win their first ever T20 World Cup, earn their way back to the coveted number one world ranking spot. And having just resigned from his coaching post, I caught Justin at what I think is a great time and in a great space for a chat about all things potential, performance and helping others. Justin Langer has a passion for cricket and for achieving. It's basically impossible to miss it. You can feel it when he's speaking on the subject. There's an intensity in the energy that's running through each and every word. But what's also really, really great is that that intensity is also very present when he's speaking about personal growth and confronting challenges. So how Justin was with his cricket reminds me of how I was with my rugby. So I want to use this little episode ahead of the Justin Langer interview to talk about this fascinating intensity and the role that I feel it may play as both the source of inexplicable genius, but also as a catalyst for severe challenge. And in my case, some self-destruction, the blessing and the curse as it's known, but does it have to be this way? So that's where we're going with this one. So about the age of seven or eight years old, just like Justin, I wrote my goals down loads of them and I went for it with the bar height on these ones being the best in the world winning the biggest trophies representing the greatest teams holding the most records doing the most memorable things everything and anything I had the sense that it was all possible so why not shoot high and there was such energy behind it all there was a deep adoration and connection with the game it was like a magnetism it drew out my effortless power I had no question that it was what I was born to do mostly because it's just what I was always doing, whether I planned to or not. I just felt at home when I had a ball in my hands and the grass beneath my feet. And when I couldn't be outside, I made cardboard balls out of whatever I could find at home and kicked them around the house instead. I just loved it and I could not get enough of it. But there was also this sort of subtle undercurrent of impatience towards achieving all those goals. And it poured out of me when I didn't have that ball in my hand. What was so simple on the pitch became so complex when I was away from it. In these moments, there was a real burning need to arrive at the destination now. Justin describes it for him as being in a hurry the whole time. 
I needed to get there, not because I was so excited about it, but because I couldn't bear the thought of what if I never made it there? Because it was like my safety depended upon that attainment in some way. And the sense of life and death that it created about everything, it felt so real on that physical level. But of course, there wasn't any actual immediate danger to me in that way at all. The perpetrator underneath it all was a kind of lack of trust. Well, in fact, a massive lack of trust and therefore a lack of grounding and stability. In this state, I was a completely different person, completely. I went from being a life-loving creator on the field to a death-fearing analyzer of everything off of it. I simply in this state could not allow myself to see that things were ever okay. It was so much easier to create the idea that everything was against me than it was to sit and just be okay with it. Whereas I found it so easy to set those goals and shoot high. Now in this state, it was so much easier to believe that I was born to shoulder the burden of constant threat. And I spent so long reacting this way and got so used to playing this role that it ended up becoming who I was. I forgot that I had any choice in the matter. I was unaware that I did. And afterwards, I just needed it to feel like myself, to feel comfortable. It became basically like a blanket for me. If things were bad, I felt better. Justin mentioned something that really rings a bell for me. Okay. So we went about our business and then I played the next five years, I played three tests, but I was evolving. Like my game was in domestic cricket. And then I eventually came back in, played 50 test matches. And then I got in 2001 in England, I got dropped again. I now I'm 31 years old <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, you know, this is, I get dropped and that's it. That's the end of my career. Yeah. And then I went through the darkest period in England. I'm still on an Ashes tour, but I'm not in the team for that first test. Ten days before, I was quitting. I was retiring. I was going to get on an aeroplane and go home. So I got such a dark place. And then I sat down with the coach and John Buchanan, Adam Gilchrist and Steve War, the captain and vice captain, who also, you talk about freestyle, they were, they were my mates. Right? Steve War was my hero and my mate, but he was also the captain. He dropped me back eight weeks before. And I just said, that's it. I didn't talk to them. I didn't talk to them. I'll work it out myself. I'll train harder. I'll work harder. So when failure and setback occurred in my life, in my time, when opinion didn't fall in my favour, I took it incredibly personally. It was like a direct validation of all those insecurities. It was like getting found out and realising that all your worst fears were true. So the urge to run and give it all up was astonishingly strong. Through a sense of shame and embarrassment, I retreated, isolated myself further from everyone. But eventually, though, the sense that it just can't get any worse, it generates a touch of freedom. And for a short time, it becomes a bit of a motivation and performance enhancer. To this nothing-to-lose stance, all you have to do is add a pinch of resentment, desire, and been urged to prove everyone wrong, and you've got yourself a potent mix. But the recipe is explosive and destructive because it's blind and it's reactive. It always ended up taking its toll on me and those around me when I was like this. The collateral damage was big, but the internal damage was perhaps even greater. 
And also on top of it, it only required a few successes to come out of it. One or two articles of praise back in the media and all the old insecurities were back. The cycle just kept winding tighter and tighter. Every escape door I thought I could find just led me back to the same old road. And with this threat of humiliation and failure following me around the pitch like an ominous cloud or shadow, I lived in survival mode, working myself to the bone just to get these privileged opportunities done and out the way. The biggest performances, the greatest victories, they led only to the biggest size of relief and nothing more. Justin articulates this really well with this little story. Just after I retired, Andy Hurry, who's the director of cricket at Somerset, ex-Royal Marine, he's become like a soulmate. He's a ripping person. I love him. He's one of my great friends. But he came out, he brought the England under-19 cricket team out to West Australia. He was the head coach. And he asked if I'd come and talk to the boys about the journey, I guess. The first question after I'd presented to the boys was, what was the highlight of your career? Pretty standard question, right? And I've got this urge from my toes all the way through my body to say, and I didn't say this, was the day I retired. Now, I couldn't say that because I thought I can't yeah. ruin these kids' dreams. But that was the initial, the day I retired because it was almost like, oh, I didn't have to put up with all that pressure anymore or call it pressure or call it doubts. But it was such a strong instinct for me to say that to the boys. So is it therefore that this survival mode is just the necessary preparation for performance? Does suffering bring about the liberation? This would seem to be the societal view with all the stuff out there about dealing with pressure and coping mechanisms. But does there actually need to be pressure around our passions? I mean, after all, surely preparation is about what gets us in the greatest condition to perform. I think there's a really big concept to explore here. And that is that what if our thoughts and feelings, our activity and therefore the outcomes from it are created by our state of being and they're not what create our state of being. If this were the case, then our sole interest would be in accessing and shifting our state of being to one that gives rise instantaneously to more inspiring kinds of thoughts, feelings, and more flowing kinds of activity. What I'm finding out in my life is that it's pretty much impossible to succeed at changing my thoughts and my world without changing who I am. As Dr. Joe Dispenza says, nothing changes until the energy changes. Nothing changes until we change. And at our very best... We think so intuitively and creatively. And isn't this because we're so relaxed and effortless and at ease with ourselves and the unknown? So isn't it worth practicing this in every moment leading up to any big event rather than all the struggle and the fight and the defense and the constant trying of self-convincing? Justin tells us about how he practiced transcendental meditation early in his career and throughout as part of this preparation process and as a way, I guess, to access directly his state of being. And I love this. I love it so much, probably because I know just how not ready I was for this sort of thing when I was at that age and that stage. I was far too busy going round and round deepening the black hole I was in by trying to think my way out of it and run from my feelings. 
meditation at this stage, <laughs> well, it was all nonsense. But what I'm seeing now, what an opportunity it really is. Maybe it is the cycle breaker. A nice way to think about meditation, I find, is to see it as a deep, conscious relaxing of everything on the physical, mental, emotional, and deeper levels. Relaxation is acceptance. And just because we're not fighting, it doesn't mean that we're giving in or giving up. Quite the opposite. Relaxation is a movement towards expanding our awareness to more information, disentangling ourselves from our thoughts and feelings to reveal brand new space within ourselves. It will never be the answer to a specific problem. It's more the dissolution of the problem and therefore the connection to something far greater that is our potential. Relaxation for me is the key to composure, to clarity, to releasing emotions, to learning, to spontaneity. It's the key to the receptive mode and the creative mode. It's also the way that we can enhance our physical reach, which when you think about it, the ability with loose shoulders to move your arms wider, to swing faster, with legs as well, it massively enhances technique and efficiency when it comes to skills in our activity. In performance though, there must be passion and direction. There must be a desire, a dream, a vision. There has to be energy and willingness because it's got to mean something. Otherwise, nothing gets done. And this voice on the inside, that's our calling for me. That's the highest excitement and it needs to be listened to, needs to be fed and nurtured. It's worth devoting everything we have to, I find. I know I haven't been able to destroy the energy of that calling, but I've been able to get in the way of it. When we relax, we don't relax away from this energy. We relax into it, into the passion and the intensity. We channel it. And when we're ready to understand that this beautiful calling and power on the inside doesn't actually belong to us, but simply is coming through us, then that what about me personal filter can move aside and the power of it all can be unleashed. One way I've found to look at it is to think, well, if I already knew that what I'm about to do or what I'm about to experience was going to turn out somehow beautifully for me, how would I prepare before it and perform during it if I already knew that, if I had that absolute understanding and knowing of it when we surrender our desire to control like this we become guided by the natural rhythm tempo and intelligence of these inner sensations and passions we align and fall into step with it we find flow and in that flow there's access to inspiration to impulses to intuition insights all that come from something far bigger than our little selves and our logic and our intellects and our education and conditioning. This, therefore, is what connecting to potential looks like for me. It means getting out of our own way. And when we're willing to, this is the difference between being the genius of our lives or grafting our way through it. So our thoughts, our goals and visualizations, they're vital for providing the necessary platform and structure for the performance. But the mind can only lead us to the edge of that performance zone. It can't come in there with us. We must leave everything at the door before we enter. And this is meditation, or as Justin calls it, letting go. 
conclusions and ideas about ourselves and the world, they need to be constantly released so that they can be reborn and recreated in the most updated, relevant form. Holding on to the same image, no matter how inspiring or helpful it once was, holding on to it once a new event begins, it just pulls us out of that zone and that now. Holding on to it once the event has finished and looking back on it for comparison is often asking for trouble. I use my perfect images of how great things could be to get me in that great feeling mood before a game. But then I just couldn't let them go and I lent on them for how things had to be during it and after it. I missed the point. I never got to that full engagement of performance. I think I could have done and definitely as I wanted to. Because I kept choosing my own limited beliefs from the past over the limitless power of the now. It was like I was saying that I knew better than the higher power. So I refused to surrender to it. I devoted far more energy to me and my idea of life, which only created a bigger boundary between me and life. My self-importance and even my arrogance just kept me in the way. But what, as before, when we were talking about helping the process, what if we could just let go into the understanding that maybe the higher power has it right? Maybe everything we're experiencing is not a wrong turn on the path. Maybe they are the path. All it takes is the awareness and the commitment to remain true to acceptance, relaxation, and then listening to and following passion. Justin describes his transcendental meditation as a single-minded focus on breathing or on a mantra. He also found that a very single-minded focus helped him to find that same meditative beauty out in the cricket square when he was at his best. There's two lots of two powerful words. One is truth works. Truth works. Yeah. So Alex Ferguson told me that. The other one is let go. Let go is the, are the two most powerful words I know. So I get to the middle. If I get my head forward and I see the ball and let go of everything else, I'm fine. And I was happy. And you're only really happy off the field when you let go. Yeah. Let go of stresses and worries. And it's amazing how different life can be. I too used to focus on very, very fine details. For me, it was an exact piece of stitching on the ball in the place I was going to strike it when kicking. And this absolute dedicated concentration, it left no space for anything else. No thoughts about protecting myself, no room for what ifs, no place for energy to leak away. As a result, I found myself becoming immersed into the action, becoming closer to it and as such getting a deeper feel for it. I feel like transcendental meditation is about bringing that same willingness and devotion and focus to something that belongs right here and now, something that belongs to both the individual and the higher being too. So the breath and the sound of a mantra are vehicles to help us cross this dimensional boundary, if you will. Our Breathing has an automatic, mystical, existential essence to it. But it is also something that we can influence and play with ourselves on a very individual, human and physical level. The same way that we can physically engage in the chanting of mantras, but the vibrational frequency of the sound 
Well, that connects us to something far more subtle, a realm of intelligence that belongs way beyond the plane of just the five senses and the boundaries of the body. And just like in our sports, we bring ourselves to the edge with our involvement in the practice, but then we have to let go and allow the higher force to look after the next step. When we try and look after that step, it just becomes a step in the other direction, further away from what we're after. But when we allow for that space to look after itself, the doer can disappear into the doing and it suddenly becomes an experience of being. This relaxation for me is so healing because it's constantly bringing energy in. It's the receptive mode. There were two very different paths that I experienced towards achieving my dreams in my career. One was a path of great resistance. One was a path of far less. It's possible to do it both ways, I feel. Through great suffering, but also through effortless joy and awareness. Now, one of these paths means that we keep healing and receiving. We keep growing, expanding. It enlivens, inspires and awakens us. It energizes us in spite of all the physical activity and running around, which for me was a lot. But that's not to say it's not without its challenges. It is, however, a beautiful realization of a paradox. Active recovery, receiving fully by giving everything and engaging fully. Absolute safety through total surrender. Total control by giving total control away. The other path, well, that one's about leaking energy. It's draining energy. It's hanging in there for as long as you can. It's one that contracts and reduces and reinforces and looks for recovery once all the work is done. We're constantly looking for the end of the working day, for the end of the working week, for the end of the year to the summer holiday, maybe the end of the career to retirement, and eventually, unfortunately, the end of life to the legacy we want to leave. The healing path, however, is always a stepping stone to something more, something new. The suffering path, I think it's one that knowingly leads to less and less as we cope and manage our way to ensuring we keep our limits. I get the feeling that Justin's on a healing path, one of great maturity that's recognising the importance of challenge and humility in confronting it, and also of relaxation and letting go into that being. He's got so much to say about how it's come about for him, but also how it's manifesting in his life too. He's also got plenty, I think, to elaborate on what I'm trying to talk about here. I think you're really going to enjoy the podcast with him, because I certainly did. I want to say thank you to you all for your support and for tuning in. Please let me know your thoughts on this kind of thing as I appreciate that I'm properly going for it and yeah, maybe I can do with reining it in. But knowing your feelings and what you're hearing, what interests you, what you might be wrestling with in terms of concepts or life experiences, but also whatever feels important to you, whatever's being inspired and coming up in you as you're hearing these things, it's relevant, it's hugely important. Your guidance is imperative your energy is just immense. My name is Johnny Wilkinson. This is the I Am Podcast with Justin Langer. So that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. But until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Mags Creative. 
The executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. 